What the next development of the conversation would have been I cannot say, for at that moment the door was thrown open violently, and a tall young man strode into the room. Just for a moment I had the uncanny sensation that the dead man had come to life again. Then I realized that this dark head was untouched with grey, and that in point of fact it was a mere boy who now burst in among us with so little ceremony. He went straight to Mrs. Renault with an impetuosity that took no heed of the presence of others. Mother! Jack! With a cry she folded him in her arms. My dearest! But what brings you here? You were to sail on the Anzora from Cherbourg two days ago. Then, suddenly recalling to herself the presence of others, she turned with a certain dignity. My son, monsieur. Aha! said Monsieur Hotet, acknowledging the young man's bow. So you did not sail on the Anzora? No, monsieur. As I was about to explain, the Anzora was detained twenty-four hours through engine trouble. I should have sailed last night instead of the night before, but happening to buy an evening paper, I saw in it an account of the the awful tragedy that had befallen us. His voice broke, and the tears came into his eyes. My poor father! My poor, poor father! Staring at him like one in a dream, Mrs. Renault repeated, So uh, you did not sail? And then, with a gesture of infinite weariness, she murmured as though to herself, After all, it does not matter. Now. Uh, sit down, Monsieur Renault, I beg of you, said Monsieur Hotet, indicating a chair. My sympathy for you is profound. It must have been a terrible shock to you to learn the news as you did. However, it is most fortunate that you were prevented from sailing. I am in hopes that you may be able to give us just the information we need to clear up this mystery. I am at your disposal, monsieur. Ask me any questions you please. To begin with, I understand that this journey was being undertaken at your father's request. Quite so, monsieur. I received a telegram bidding me to proceed without delay to Buenos Aires, and from thence via the Andes to Valparaiso and on to Santiago. Ah, and the object of this journey? I have no idea. What? No. See, here in the telegram. The magistrate took it and read it aloud. Proceed immediately, Cherbourg, embark and Zora, sailing tonight, Buenos Aires. Ultimate destination, Santiago. Further instructions will await you, Buenos Aires. Do not fail. Matter is of utmost importance. Renault. And there had been no previous correspondence on the matter? Jack Renault shook his head. That's the only intimation of any kind. I knew, of course, that my father, having lived so long out there, had necessarily many interests in South America, but he had never mooted any suggestion of sending me out. You have, of course, been a good deal in South America, Monsieur Renault. I was there as a child, but I was educated in England, and spent most of my holidays in that country, so I really know far less of South America than might be supposed. You see, the war broke out when I was seventeen. You served in the English Flying Corps, did you not? Yes, Monsieur. Monsieur Hotet nodded his head and proceeded with his inquiries along the by now well-known lines. In response... Jack Renault declared definitely that he knew nothing of any enmity his father might have incurred in the city of Santiago or elsewhere in the South American continent, that he had noticed no change in his father's manner of late, and that he had never heard him refer to a secret. He had regarded the mission to South America as connected with business interests. As Monsieur Hotet paused for a minute, 
the quiet voice of Giraud broke in. I should like to put a few questions of my own, Monsieur le Juge. By all means, Monsieur Giraud, if you wish, said the magistrate coldly. Giraud edged his chair a little nearer to the table. Were you on good terms with your father, Monsieur Renaud? Certainly I was, returned the lad haughtily. You assert that positively? Yes. No little disputes, eh? Jack shrugged his shoulders. <laughs> Everyone may have a difference of opinion now and again. Quite so, quite so. But if anyone were to assert that you had a violent quarrel with your father on the eve of your departure for Paris, that person without doubt would be lying. I could not but admire the ingenuity of Giraud. His boast, I know everything, had been no idle one. Jack Renault was clearly disconcerted by the question. We, we did have an argument, he admitted. Ah, an argument. In the course of that argument, did you use this phrase? When you are dead, I can do as I please? I, I may have done, muttered the other. I don't know. In response to that, did your father say, but I am not dead yet? To which you responded, I wish you were? The boy made no answer. His hands fiddled nervously with the things on the table in front of him. I must request an answer, please, Monsieur Renaud, said Giraud sharply. With an angry exclamation, the boy swept a heavy paper-knife to the floor. What does it matter? You might as well know. Yes, I did quarrel with my father. I dare say I said all those things. I was so angry I cannot even remember what I said. I was furious. I could almost have killed him at that moment. There, make the most of that. He leant back in his chair, flushed and defiant. Giraud smiled. Then, moving his chair back a little, he said, that is all. You would, without doubt, prefer to continue the interrogatory, Monsieur Hottet. Ah, yes, exactly, said Monsieur Hottet. And uh, what was the subject of your quarrel? That I declined to state. Monsieur Hottet sat up in his chair. Monsieur Renaud, it is not permitted to trifle with the law, he thundered. What was the subject of the quarrel? Young Renaud remained silent, his boyish face sullen and overcast. But another voice spoke, imperturbable and calm, the voice of Hercule Poirot. I will inform you, if you like, monsieur. You know? Certainly I know. The subject of the quarrel was Mademoiselle Marthe Dubreuil. Renaud sprang round, startled. The magistrate leaned forward. Is that so, monsieur? Jack Renaud bowed his head. Yes, he admitted. I love Mademoiselle Dubreuil and I wish to marry her. When I informed my father of the fact, he flew at once into a violent rage. Naturally, I could not stand hearing the girl I loved insulted, and I, too, lost my temper. Monsieur Hotet looked across at Mrs. Renault. You were aware of this uh, attachment, madame? I feared it, she replied simply. Mother, cried the boy, you, too. Marta is as good as she is beautiful. What can you have against her? I... Have nothing against Mademoiselle Dubreuil in any way, but I should prefer you to marry an Englishwoman, or if a Frenchwoman, not one who has a mother of doubtful antecedents. Her rancor against the older woman showed plainly in her voice, 
and I could well understand that it must have been a bitter blow to her when her only son showed signs of falling in love with the daughter of her rival. Mrs. Renault continued, addressing the magistrate, I ought perhaps to have spoken to my husband on the subject, but I hoped that it was only a boy and a girl flirtation which would blow over all the quicker if no notice was taken of it. I blame myself now for my silence, but my husband, as I told you, had seemed so anxious and careworn, different altogether from his normal self, that I was chiefly concerned not to give him any additional worry. Monsieur Hote nodded. When you informed your father of your intentions towards Mademoiselle de Bray, he resumed, he was surprised? He seemed completely taken aback. Then he ordered me peremptorily to dismiss any such idea from my mind. He would never give his consent to such a marriage. Nettled, I demanded what he had against Mademoiselle de Bray. To that he could give no satisfactory reply, but spoke in slighting terms of the mystery surrounding the lives of the mother and the daughter. I answered that I was marrying Martha, and not her antecedents, but he shouted me down, with a peremptory refusal to discuss the matter in any way. The whole thing must be given up. The injustice and high-handedness of it all maddened me, especially since he himself always seemed to go out of his way to be attentive to the Dobreys, and was always suggesting that they should be asked to the house. I lost my head, and we quarrelled in earnest. My father reminded me that I was entirely dependent on him, and it must have been in answer to that that I made the remark about doing as I pleased after his death. Poirot interrupted with a quick question. You were aware, then, of the terms of your father's will? I knew that he had left half his fortune to me, the other half in trust for my mother, to come to me at her death, replied the lad. Proceed with your story, said the magistrate. After that we shouted at each other in sheer rage until I suddenly realized that I was in danger of missing my train to Paris. I had to run for the station, still in a white heat of fury. However, once well away, I calmed down. I wrote to Marta, telling her what had happened, and her reply soothed me still further. She pointed out to me that we had only to be steadfast, and any opposition was bound to give way at last. Our affection for each other must be tried and proved, and when my parents realized that it was no light infatuation on my part, they would doubtless relent towards us. Of course, to her, I had not dwelt on my father's principal objection to the match. I soon saw that I should do my cause no good by violence. To pass on to another matter— you are acquainted with the name of Duvin, Monsieur Renaud? Duvin, said Jack. Duvin? He leant forward and slowly picked up the paper knife he had swept from the table. As he lifted his head, his eyes met the watching ones of Giraud. Duvin? No, I can't say I do. Will you read this letter, Monsieur Renaud, and tell me if you have any idea as to who the person was who addressed it? To your father. Jack Renault took the letter and read it through, the colour mounting in his face as he did so. Addressed to my father? The emotion and indignation in his tones were evident. Yes, we found it in the pocket of his coat. Does, he hesitated, throwing the merest fraction of a glance towards his mother. The magistrate understood. As yet, no. Can you give us any clue as to the writer? I have no idea whatsoever. Monsieur Hotet sighed. A most mysterious case. 
Ah, well, I suppose we can now rule out the letter altogether. Let me see. Where were we? Ah, the weapon. I fear this may give you pain, Monsieur Renaud. I understand it was a present from you to your mother. Very sad. Very distressing. Jack Renaud leaned forward. His face, which had flushed during the perusal of the letter, was now deadly white. Do you mean that it was with an aeroplane wire paper cutter that my father was... was killed? But it's impossible. A little thing like that. Alas, Monsieur Renaud, it is only too true. An ideal little tool, I fear. Sharp and easy to handle. Where is it? Can I see it? Is it still in the... the body? Oh, no. It has been removed. You would like to see it? To make sure? It would be as well, perhaps. Though Madame has already identified it. Still, Monsieur Bex, might I trouble you? Certainly. I will fetch it immediately. Would it not be better to take Monsieur Renault to the shed? suggested Giraud smoothly. Without doubt he would wish to see his father's body. The boy made a shivering gesture of negation, and the magistrate, always disposed to cross Giraud whenever possible, replied, But no. Not at present. Monsieur Bex will be so kind as to bring it to us here. The commissary left the room. Stoner crossed to Jack and wrung him by the hand. Poirot had risen and was adjusting a pair of candlesticks that struck his trained eye as being a shade askew. The magistrate was reading the mysterious love letter through a last time, clinging desperately to his first theory of jealousy and a stab in the back. Suddenly the door burst open and the commissary rushed in. Monsieur le juge! Monsieur le juge! But yes, what is it? The dagger! It is gone! What? Gone? Vanished, disappeared, the glass jar that contained it is empty. What? I cried. Impossible. Why, only this morning I saw— The words died on my tongue, but the attention of the entire room was diverted to me. What is it you say? cried the commissary. This morning? I saw it there this morning, I said slowly. About an hour and a half ago, to be accurate. You went to the shed then? How did you get the key? I asked the sergent de ville for it. And you went there? Why? I hesitated, but in the end I decided that the only thing to do was to make a clean breast of it. Monsieur Hautet, I said, I have committed a grave fault, for which I must crave your indulgence. Proceed, monsieur. The fact of the matter is, I said, wishing myself anywhere else but where I was, that I met a young lady, an acquaintance of mine, she displayed a great desire to see everything that was to be seen, and I—well, in short, I took the key to show her the body. Ah! cried the magistrate indignantly. But it is a grave fault you have committed there, Captain Hastings. It is altogether most irregular. You should not have permitted yourself this folly. I know, I said meekly. Nothing that you can say could be too severe, monsieur. You did not invite this lady to come here? Oh, certainly not. I met her quite by accident. She's an English lady who happens to be staying in Merlinville, though I was not aware of that until my unexpected meeting with her. Well, well, said the magistrate, softening. It was most irregular. But the lady is without doubt young and beautiful. What it is to be young! And he sighed sentimentally. But the commissary, less romantic and more practical, took up the tale— 
But you did not reclose and lock the door when you departed? That's just it, I said slowly. That's what I blame myself for terribly. My friend was upset at the sight. She nearly fainted. I got her some brandy and water, and then afterwards insisted on accompanying her back to the town. In the excitement, I forgot to relock the door. I only did so when I got back to the villa. Then for twenty minutes at least, said the commissary slowly. He stopped. Exactly, I said. Twenty minutes, mused the commissary. It is deplorable, said Monsieur Hotet, his sternness of manner returning. Without precedent. Suddenly another voice spoke. You find it deplorable? asked Giraud. Certainly I do. I find it admirable, said the other imperturbably. This unexpected ally quite bewildered me. Admirable, Monsieur Giraud? asked the magistrate, studying him cautiously out of the corner of his eye. Precisely. And why? Because we know now that the assassin or an accomplice of the assassin has been near the villa only an hour ago. It will be strange if with that knowledge we do not shortly lay hands upon him. There was a note of menace in his voice. He continued, He risked a good deal to gain possession of that dagger. Perhaps he feared that fingerprints might be discovered on it. Poirot turned to Bex. You said there were none? Giraud shrugged his shoulders. Perhaps he could not be sure. Poirot looked at him. You are wrong, Monsieur Giraud. The assassin wore gloves, so he must have been sure. I do not say it was the assassin himself. It may have been an accomplice who was not aware of that fact. The magistrate's clerk was gathering up the papers on the table. Monsieur Hotet addressed us. Our work here is finished. Perhaps, Monsieur Renaud, you will listen while your evidence is read over to you. I have purposely kept all the proceedings as informal as possible. I have been called originally in my methods, but I maintain that there is much to be said for originality. The case is now in the clever hands of the renowned Monsieur Giraud. He will without doubt distinguish himself. Indeed, I wonder that he has not already laid his hands upon the murderers. Madame, again let me assure you of my heartfelt sympathy. Monsieur, I wish you all good day. And accompanied by his clerk and the commissary, he took his departure. Poirot tugged out that large turnip of a watch of his and observed the time. Let us return to the hotel for lunch, my friend, he said, and you shall recount to me in full the indiscretions of this morning. No one is observing us. We need make no adieu. We went quietly out of the room. The examining magistrate had just driven off in his car. I was going down the steps when Poirot's voice arrested me. One little moment, my friend. Dexterously, he whipped out his yard measure and proceeded quite solemnly to measure an overcoat hanging in the hall from the collar to the hem. I had not seen it hanging there before and guessed that it belonged to either Mr. Stoner or Jack Reno. Then, with a little satisfied grunt, Poirot returned the measure to his pocket and followed me out into the open air. Chapter 12 Poirot Elucidates Certain Points "'Why did you measure that overcoat?' I asked, with some curiosity, as we walked down the hot white road at a leisurely pace. "'Parbleu! To see how long it was!' replied my friend imperturbably. I was vexed. Poirot's incurable habit of making a mystery out of nothing never failed to irritate me. I relapsed into silence, and followed a train of thought of my own. 
Although I had not noticed them specially at the time, certain words Mrs. Renault had addressed to her son now recurred to me, fraught with a new significance. So you did not sail, she had said, and then had added, after all, it does not matter, now. What had she meant by that? The words were enigmatical, significant. Was it possible that she knew more than we supposed? She had denied all knowledge of the mysterious mission with which her husband was to have entrusted his son, but was she really less ignorant than she pretended? Could she enlighten us if she chose, and was her silence part of a carefully thought-out and preconceived plan? The more I thought about it, the more I was convinced that I was right. Mrs. Renault knew more than she chose to tell. In her surprise at seeing her son, she had momentarily betrayed herself. I felt convinced that she knew, if not the assassins, at least the motive for the assassination. But some very powerful considerations must keep her silent. "'You think profoundly, my friend,' remarked Poirot, breaking in upon my reflections. "'What is it that intrigues you so?' I told him. Sure of my ground, though feeling expectant that he would ridicule my suspicions, but to my surprise he nodded thoughtfully. "'You are quite right, Hastings. From the beginning I have been sure that she was keeping something back. At first I suspected her, if not of inspiring, at least of conniving at the crime.' "'You suspected her?' I cried. "'But certainly. She benefits enormously. In fact, by this new will she is the only person to benefit. So from the start she was singled out for attention.' You may have noticed that I took an early opportunity of examining her wrists. I wished to see whether there was any possibility that she had gagged and bound herself. Eh bien, I saw at once that there was no fake. The cords had actually been drawn so tight as to cut into the flesh. That ruled out the possibility of her having committed the crime single-handed. But it was still possible for her to have connived at it, or to have been the instigator with an accomplice. Moreover, the story, as she told it, was singularly familiar to me. The masked men, that she could not recognize, the mention of the secret. I had heard or read all these things before. Another little detail confirmed my belief that she was not speaking the truth. The wristwatch, Hastings. The wristwatch. Again, that wristwatch, 